It's Thursday, September 22nd, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Polls, polls, the poll of poll, a poll of a poll of a poll, a Polish guy doing a poll of polls. The best article on polling came out today in the New York Times. It was by the upshot. And what they did was they got the raw data, uh, good data, they thought. They interviewed people in Florida and they gave it to five different pollsters. And they said, so who won this poll? You think this would be fairly straightforward, but it's not. Here were the different results that five pollsters got from 867 poll responses. Clinton won by three. Clinton won by four. Clinton won by one. Clinton won by one. Trump won by one. What? How could unbiased pollsters look at the same results from the same number of people One said Trump won by a little, and the other one said Clinton won by a little, and another one said Clinton won by a little more than a little. Well, this all has to do with weighting, what your model is for who's a likely voter, what your model is for what percentage of the electorate is going to be what race. It's all fairly detailed. But suffice it to say that different pollsters will look at the same results and they'll come to different conclusions, not wildly disparate conclusions, except the one guy who said Lyndon LaRouche was doing pretty well. But, you know, different enough, different enough to cause people maybe anxiety that a certain candidate is doing better than another. And I was thinking of an analogy. Remember last week when we were talking to Harry Enten and we were debating what margin of error means? They didn't even bother to come up with a margin of error for any of these polls because the whole point is to show that before Before you even get to the point where you can calculate margin of error, so much cooking goes into the polls, not in a bad sense, just in the special sauce, how polling is mostly science, but a lot art. So, so much goes into that, so much flavoring, so much extraction, that margin of error is a really, really poor way to communicate how much we don't know. And here is my analogy. When you watch NFL football and we see that you need 10 yards to get a first down and the guy is called the chain gang, they run onto the field with links in a chain that's exactly 10 feet long. And maybe if they stretch it, it'll be 10.001 feet. And maybe if they don't, it'll be 9.999 feet but it's really close to 10 feet. And they'll give you this precise measurement if the ball went 10 feet. But it's all based on the referee just kind of imagining where the ball carrier stopped and then putting the ball where he imagines that happened. So there's some precision at the end, but there's a whole lot of inexactitude in the middle. On the show today, I think we could say pretty exactly that as we talk about, as we're on the eve of perhaps electing the greatest president ever, I'm going to say that not is what we're going to do. But anyway, so we're on the eve of that. Let's talk about the guy the historians say is the worst president ever. And in the spiel, I will tell you why all of this, caring about politics, thinking that I'm an informed voter and that matters, why that's all kind of bullshit. But first, ladies and gentlemen, I give you the presidency of James Buchanan. President John F. Kennedy did not like this game that historians got into of ranking the presidents. He made a very telling remark, telling for what he gave away, when he said, no one has a right to grade a president, even poor James Buchanan, 
who has not sat in his chair, examined the mail and information that came across his desk, and learned why he made his decisions. So even if we take Kennedy at his word, and even if his argument holds the day, we're still left with the fact that he is at least strongly implying that James Buchanan was the worst president. Indeed, I think he was, as does Robert Strauss, for that man has written a book called Worst, period, President, period, ever, period. James Buchanan, the POTUS ratings game, and the legacy of the least of the lesser presidents. Hello, Robert Strauss. Hi, how you doing, Mike? Did you get into this book because you wanted to write about Buchanan or because you wanted someone to write about Buchanan? I had a lifelong uh, sort of offbeat obsession with presidents. I mean, I grew up in Philadelphia where presidents trod before me. And when I found out I used to park my car for my noonday basketball games next to the place where Buchanan's papers were, it sort of uh, dawned on me that there was something left out of American history and that (laughs) that was the assessment of, of the worst president. I, through the book, you're saying it, it, the paucity of information about Buchanan, even if he was the worst, he was still a president. But as you point out, the idea about writing about all presidents, even the lesser ones, even the worst ones, that's not a tradition that really predates FDR. The presidential biography really, you know, were the greats, Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, until after FDR and history... Well, we had enough history, I guess, to think about other presidents. And my thought is, let's say you're the next president, whoever the next president is, and you just want to study presidents, and you say, well, I want to be like Washington and Lincoln. Well, you sort of can't be, because you can't start the country again, and you can't imagine the Civil War, although I'm sure people out there think that you can. But so what do you do? You say, do you, do you aspire to be like James Monroe? I don't know, maybe, you know. But what you can be is not be James Buchanan. Okay, so let's talk about Buchanan. Let's talk about the man. Let's talk about his times. Before he became president, he did have an excellent resume, correct? Perhaps the greatest resume of anybody who's ever run for president from a major party. He was a state legislator in Pennsylvania. He was a U.S. congressman. He was a U.S. senator. He was ambassador to Russia. He was ambassador to uh, Great Britain. He was secretary of state. He was said to have been offered the Supreme Court by two different presidents, and he sort of ran for president a few times. But in that record, though, it does fill up a uh, sheet quite nicely. There were elements that, if properly understood or examined, would have revealed him to have some of the flaws that shone through during his presidency. Like, you talk about when he was Secretary of State with Pierce, there was just a lot of flip-flopping going on. Yeah, it was Polk, but but anyway, oh, Polk, you know, they all run together. All these guys with P, right? And, <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> he was he was a flip flopper. He was the Polk was sort of an aggressively ambitious expansionist president, and you know they won Texas and other lands in the Southwest and and the Northwest territories, and and he would go back and forth, and he he'd suggest something, and Polk would say okay, and he said well maybe not this, and maybe not that, and it would go back and forth before this what we view as a monumental thing, like the border between Canada and the United States. And so, yeah, he had he had sort of a waffling kind of personality. He's a good partier, though. He was the best yeah, partier he, in mid-century uh, uh, America. <laughs> I guess we would say he had a good personality, but 
You point out that there are elements of his character, which we found out when he was president, were deficient, but were there all his life. He always sort of was a conciliator. I mean, he was he was probably a very good diplomat because, like I said, he gave parties, he waited out things, he was hale, people liked him. You know, Tsar Nicholas in uh, Russia would see him on the street and he'd say, Buchanan, you know, like, just like, <laughs> like, like, like almost like a comedy routine with John Lovitz, you know. Before we even talk about the politics, I mean, early on in the book, you set a scene, you talked about how Buchanan was a good partier and there were just no parties in Washington. It seems almost as if there was no joy in Washington, perhaps the country, you know, Franklin Pierce, all his ch- children die before he becomes president. Every member of Lincoln's cabinet has had to deal with the death of a child at some point in his life. I mean, just little details like during the inaugural feast, there was food poisoning and it wasn't just that people got upset stomachs. People died from this, as you call it, this mini plague. Things were bad in America in the 1850s. Well, you know, Washington was it was a swamp. You know, the, the, the thing you talk about was not at the inaugural ball, but in the lead up to the inauguration. Buchanan's nephew dies. It's, it's at the National Hotel. It's, I don't know if it was the biggest hotel in Washington, but it was certainly the place where all the Democrats were hanging out. Tyler's wife dies and, and uh, Fillmore's wife is sick through his whole presidency and she dies soon after. And well, and then two presidents died in Washington, uh, uh, Harrison and, and, and Taylor. So from the time Jackson and Van Buren, I guess, leave till the time Buchanan comes, it's just a grim place that people don't want to be in. Yeah. So just him throwing a party and famously a bachelor president, you know, having uh, his niece as first lady willing to put a smile on her face. That was a big change. <laughs> There's a biography there somewhere of Harriet Lane. I don't know. You know she was like the, uh, I don't know, the Kim Kardashian of her age. You know, every, <laughs> they were like almost like baseball cards for, for Harriet Lane fans. And she wore whatever she wore, all the women wanted to wear. And they named a, a cutter, the Harriet Lane. And even after, even the Civil War starts and Confederates capture it, they don't rename it because she's so popular. Yes. Uh, so the two of them have this new party scene, except it, it dissipates rather quickly because politics enters the fray. Yeah. So politics enters the fray very early on. The Dred Scott decision. Um, remind us of what that was. And most importantly, tell us about the horrible calculation that Buchanan made that pretty much doomed his presidency from the onset. Right. Dred Scott was a slave. Uh, his master was in the army. He, For a time, he was, he was out at Fort Snelling in Minnesota, which was free territory. Things go on. The master dies. Dred Scott sues, saying that I was once a free man, so now I really am a free man. Comes to the Supreme Court, which is five to four, in this case, not Democrats and Republicans, but Southerners and Northerners. So Buchanan wants to make a a statement about slavery, but he's a pro-Southern Northerner. And he wants the slave states placated. He sees that's the way the union will be. It's just Lincoln didn't want to be half slave and half free. Buchanan was fine with that as long as the union upheld. So before he's president, he goes behind the scenes, which you're not supposed to do, of course, and he convinces two northern judges to go along with the southern version of whatever the chief justice, Roger Tawney, would write. And the decision is basically 
that the Constitution never allows states to outlaw slavery. And the fugitive slave law is uh, enhanced and everybody has to you know, return every black man to the South or whatever it would be to his owner. And it, it just thwarts the expansion of the country. We'd been on a 20-year rise, fostered by the railroads mostly. Everybody's expanding. You know, you see all these states coming to being. And suddenly everything stops because they can't open up a business in, in Illinois where there might suddenly be slaves against their freedmen uh, employees. So railroads fail and every bank in New York closes for a day. It becomes the panic of 1857, which makes the depression, at least in its precipitous phase, nothing. So right. Buchanan says, well, you know, all these wastrel speculators, they caused all of this. Let them suffer. And, and, and Buchanan embraced the Dred Scott decision. He, he thought it would turn out well for him. Of yeah. course. He, oh, 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 he forced it and said, this is what I want. I want the country to stay you know, stable, and this is how I think that it's going to be stable. Well, it didn't work out. Yeah, <laughs> work out the way he planned. And and as you just said, it led to this uh, panic of 1857, which was worse by a lot of measures than even the Great Depression. And he had, was it philosophy or just an unwillingness and inability to put himself in it? He just said, let it play out, ultimate laissez-faire capitalism. And if, if it was even that coherent a philosophy that Buchanan held and things just got worse. He did sort of, well, he was sort of consistent in trying to stay out of things, which makes you wonder what the president's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. He held cabinet meetings every day. I, I won't say they were yes men, but he sort of picked Southerners to be in his cabinet. So they were just as happy that they were going to be slaves. I know I'm sounding much more serious than in the book in a certain sense, but th th these were serious times. And the other thing going on was... Uh, Kansas was deciding whether it'd be slave or free, and he wouldn't make a decision there. There were two different constitutional conventions that caused John Brown to become a more famous citizen, eventually trying to have this slave rebellion in Harpers Ferry, 40 miles from Washington. There's this little slave rebellion going on to capture all the arms. And until Robert E. Lee happened to be home visiting in Arlington and says, you know, I don't think this is a good idea to allow this guy to, to do things. And he sends troops out and captures John Brown. But by that time, he'd become a martyr. And everybody from Walt Whitman to Massachusetts uh, abolitionists are writing about him as a martyr. And that just sort of leads us further and further along towards the Civil War. If someone of Lincoln's intellect or temperament, or hell, let's just imagine it was Abraham Lincoln had somehow been on the scene and won four years earlier than he did. In other words, it wouldn't have been the Buchanan presidency in uh, 57, it would have been the Lincoln presidency. And before it was clear that there was actually going to be secession, do you think Lincoln would have prevented it? Maybe I should ask you, do you think even if Lincoln's great skills were brought to bear at a time before there was actual secession, um, and he did prevent it, would we eventually have had to have had a civil war somewhere down the line? There was a guy who did prevent it, and that's Andrew Jackson. But that was a long time before, because the South Carolina wanted to nullify a law. And he said, you know, hell with you. And they said, we want, you know, so then we'll secede. And he said, no, you're not. You know, he was sort of the uh, Don Corleone of presidents. He was a micromanager and he was an autocrat 
That's a great point about Jackson. I was just going to say that for all his monumental flaws, we do say there was before Lincoln a series of failure presidents who couldn't even hold the union together. Well, Jackson could. Jackson could. I guess my last question is this. There is a theory I've heard that all these bad presidents in our history will never have presidents as bad as some of the worst. Just because the pool we had to choose from back in the days when Lancaster was the largest in the city of 6,000 people. And just because now that we have the vetting mechanism of television and we get to know them and, you know, democracy is not perfect, but it seems to have advanced more than when state legislatures elect senators. Reason, 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 reason. Do you buy it? Do you think we could ever get someone who will uh, supplant James Buchanan on the bottom of the list of presidents? Well, my elevator pitch to my agent for this book was... Half of America thinks Barack Obama is the worst president ever. The other half thinks George Bush is the worst president ever. But neither of them started the Civil War. It would be hard to overcome that. Worst president ever. It's about James Buchanan, written by Robert Strauss. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. I'd like to tell you a secret. Kind of don't believe almost everything I say, by which I mean implied in this entire process of having a podcast and talking about elections and trying to put on smart people and hoping that you, the listener, get smarter. Like, it's a nice exercise. It engages me intellectually, but I really don't think it matters. Here are some of the things that most people who talk into microphones say they believe, but I don't know if they believe. Things like an informed electorate. People vote in their self-interest. The American people, at the end of the day, are pretty wise because, you know, you can't fool all the people all of the time. That's just not true. We know it's not true in the way that a committed atheist will believe that most Christians really don't believe that their religion is true. But we say that people get it right most of the time. And yet, in the last 16 years... We had two elections won by George W. Bush and two elections won by Barack Obama. Actually, Mike, George W. Bush didn't win the first time. You see, he lost the popular vote. And then the Supreme Court, all right, it doesn't matter. My point stands. In fact, smarty pants, by which I mean factually accurate pants, this is what I'm getting at. It can't be right that we got both of those presidencies correct. They were opposites. The electorate didn't change so much that they could say, ah, George W. Bush is a good president. Aha, Barack Obama is a good president. Half the people must have gotten it wrong. I do not believe in the idea or the ideal of an informed electorate delivering good political consequences. We say to ourselves, you know, if the voters only knew, if they could just be informed of the issues and not manipulated by the media. And if it's not the media, not manipulated by whatever nefarious force interferes with their true interests, then we will be delivered from this fetid political swamp. Well, look, that'll earn you a B plus on your eighth grade civics exam, but it's just not true. And it's not just me saying it. It's political scientist Larry M. Bartles of Vanderbilt University. There are various manifestations of it. One is the kind of Fourth of July rhetoric uh, that's so familiar to Americans. Uh, Lincoln's idea of government 
of the people, by the people, for the people. Uh, but there are also much more esoteric, uh, detailed, scholarly manifestations of this same idea in which we try to analyze politics as though ordinary citizens had specific preferences about every conceivable public policy and carefully calibrated their voting behavior in order to produce the policy outcomes that they thought would be best for the country or for themselves. That is right. Larry Bartles, co-director of the Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions and the Shane Sharon Public Policy and Social Science at Vanderbilt, is calling bullshit on Abe Lincoln and the 4th of July. He actually can't confirm the 3rd or 5th of July either. All right, I kid. What Bartles is really saying, along with his co-author, Christopher Aiken, he's tearing into what they call the folk theory of voting. Sometimes you hear a version of the folk theory that flatters the ignorance of the regular voter. We excuse them. We say, you know, people are busy. They can't know every detail, but they're basically good and wise and have a good sense of which candidate is a good person. Why? Because we say so? Because we want it to be true? Because if it weren't true, it would shake the assumptions of democracy? And this assumption where we invoke all the workers and their two or three jobs that they need caring for their kids and their sick parents and paying off their student debt. This doesn't take into account that the Real Housewives franchise has really high ratings. I mean, if a person can attend to Manzoed with children, they need to know if employment has gone up or down under the Obama administration. My point isn't that voters are at fault. My point is that it is impossible for voters to be up to what we consider the ideals of democracy under the folk theory. But you think you know the answer. I think I do too. I have to admit to myself, I don't. Let's take this quiz. Bombing the Houthis and arming the Kurds, backing the Druze in Lebanon. How would each affect our relationship with the current governments of Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey? Now, if that seems extremely complex, it's not. It's as basic a foreign policy question as there is. Polls currently show that the president's policy positions are quite popular. America doesn't want troops on the ground in Syria. America wants very few refugees from Syria. America wants us to be working on a ceasefire in Syria. Yet when you ask, hey, how's Syria going? Americans give the president extremely poor marks. Why? Because we want outcomes when it comes to international affairs. The same is exactly true with the economy. A recent poll shows that a slight majority of Americans support the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Now, 78% admit we're not paying too close to the TPP, but still, a lot of them had an opinion, and they say trade's good and we like this one. What the hell do they know? My point isn't that they're wrong. My point is, what the hell do they know? What the hell do I know? So we pick a side that more or less comports with our overall ideology, or we default to our political identity, or we use other issues that we do understand as proxies for these issues that we don't, and there's got to be some issues that we don't. We figure which politicians are good on the issues that we really think we get, and we go with them on the other things. It's not because we're stupid. It's not because we're lazy. It's not because we're ignorant. It's because we're people. The basic issue, I think, is about psychology, that people have stronger incentives to adopt beliefs that make them feel good about their political convictions than they do to actually know the facts. If I, as an individual voter, could possibly know everything that was relevant to deciding my vote, uh, I'd still just be one person among uh, 100 million voters. And so uh, 
my investment in that knowledge would have very little impact in terms of the actual political situation. Whereas uh, thinking every day that the facts are out of kilter with my deep convictions is likely to be troubling and in some sense much more costly to me. Bartles tells this old story about the perfect schoolboy. The perfect schoolboy was one who was said to have learned all the information, no matter how badly it was taught, or even if it was taught. In fact, the perfect schoolboy didn't have to be taught. He just learned. The American voter is our version of the perfect schoolboy. He's making a perfectly informed, rational decision based on self-interest or maybe an advanced moral compass. Guess what? The perfect schoolboy the ideal voter. They do not exist. They cannot exist. And we keep telling ourselves, but for deceptions of the media, or but for the fact that the schools don't teach the kids enough to critically think, or but for the fact that the other side is lying, the voters would know. That's what's standing in between. No, they wouldn't. The world's too complicated. Democracy for Realists, that's the name of Bartle's book. Democracy for Realists says, let us not waste our time with these sorts of efforts that are about education and voter turnout. Let's spend our time reforming the political system. Well, we think it's a fundamental misunderstanding and that devoting energy to those kinds of unrealistic ideals is likely to be distracting from more concrete improvements in the political system that might actually be feasible. So what does democracy for realists say? It says grants for investigative journalism, funding for more debates, asking the politicians to take part in more debates or town hall meetings, not that important. What's important? Restructuring politics so that interest groups are embraced Okay, not thrown out of the political system, but they really do represent people's interests. Also, things like voter suppression, gerrymandering, those things are bad, need to be eliminated. But if there's a choice to where to put our political capital, don't emphasize education, emphasize ways for citizens to organize. The idea of the silent majority, which can be interpreted or misrepresented by venal politicians, this is a danger to democracy. We have to make the majority unsilent or unsilent enough so that the people voting on laws know exactly what the voters want and the voters know enough to hold those people accountable. Voter turnout, I don't know, will it be over 50%? Will it be close to 60%? Probably not. But Bartle says, let's say voter turnout was 65 or 70 percent really wouldn't matter because voters are making limited choices based on poorly formed opinions. The last part of this is me and the gist. This whole fancy pants. And by that, I mean detailed and fact based podcast. Why do I do it? I think it's a form of entertainment. It's highbrow. It's civically useful. I like knowledge for my own sake. I listen to shows like this. I just do not think that democracy is hanging in the balance. And that is the spiel for realists. That's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson very much wanted to get into Buchanan's Paraguay expedition. Just producer Chris Berube wants you to know that in 1858, the Congress authorized a naval squadron sent to Paraguay to seek redress from that country's shelling of the Water Witch in 1855, which resulted in the death of the Water Witch's helmsman. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, points out that there was a time when the U.S. had ships named the Water Witch and that the squadron to Paraguay was sent three years after the attack. Wow, grudge holding. 
Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, wishes to note that the leader of the squadron successfully negotiated with the Paraguayan president, got an apology, and the U.S. got a good trade treaty out of it. The gist. Perhaps you knew about the Paraguay expedition. We don't want to make assumptions. Oomperu de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening.